This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. Welcome to Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you highlights from our daily radio show that's heard weekdays at 2 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. And starting on Monday, you can also watch the show on YouTube. This week, we're going to talk about how big tech betrayed its founding principles, plus conversations on luxury. We hear from the CEOs of Zenith Watches, as well as Ducati North America. But first... By the end of this century, check this out, Jason, a third of the world's population and a greater fraction of its young people will be African. It's why many investors are eyeing the market, not just for its size and potential, but also for its growing tech ecosystem. Back with us to talk about just that is Jake Bright. He's TechCrunch contributor. He's also author of The Next Africa, an emerging continent becomes a global powerhouse. He joins us back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to be back with us. Great to be back. You know, we do talk a lot about investment and we talk about specifically the raw materials or raw minerals uh, and kind of staking your claims uh, to what's to come from Africa. You're taking a look specifically at the tech ecosystem. Are you talking about kind of the tech community overall? I'm assuming it's a growing one in Africa. Yeah, Africa's had a boom in um, tech startup growth and VC investment. Uh, The time span (laughs) has really been about five to seven years. So this is relatively new. It's not shaping up everywhere, but there are some tech hubs that are becoming notable. Um, mostly Nigeria and West Africa. Um, these are places that are becoming centers of startup formation, of entrepreneurs um, going home, of VC investment. So it's Nigeria, the top hubs are Nigeria, South Africa, uh, Kenya primarily, with some others on the side, Ethiopia, Ghana. Um, and you know, what, t- what types of kind of startups, I'm, you know? I know, like, I feel like the financial industry finds a different way right. of, you know, tackling the emerging markets, and you can find some interesting things in that arena. Well, the big spending's gone on in, in fintech yeah. and e-commerce and, and internet services, but what you have right now is, is you have these formalizing economies in these, in these hubs, and even though uh, fintech and e-commerce and some obvious um, startup sectors have gotten a lot of money, you basically have this new class of young African entrepreneurs that are descending into every possible sector you can imagine, um, from ride hailing to education to multiplying you know, health services on mobile platforms. So um, it's all wide open and, and every sector is open right now in Africa. And so where does the funding come from? Where are they finding uh, willing venture capitalists? Well, this is what's um, you know, news over the, the last week is that um, Primarily, a lot of funding has come from European and U.S. investors with some African angels. But over the last quarter, uh, I've tracked this, uh, China has come in to, to invest nearly a quarter of a billion dollars in VC in African fintech, uh, almost all entirely in companies that are based in Nigeria with outward growth strategies from there. And why this is notable is that um, that's roughly one-fourth of all the venture capital that went to startups in 2018. And previous to this, China has had an elevated engagement with Africa, but it's been mostly related to trade Mm -hmm. and trade finance and building things and bricks and mortar stuff. We've been waiting for China to go all in on African digital in full. Uh, And these last several investment rounds in fintech um, kind of indicate that that's happened or happening. Why? Why is this? Is it of concern? Is it of interest? How would you describe it? Well, it runs a gamut. I I should say a little bit more about the rounds. So you have um, a group of Chinese investors who the biggest round is just recently into Opera, the internet company. Um, They've started to launch services startups in Nigeria. So they have a payment startup called Opay, uh, which a group of Chinese investors, Sequoia China, um, Source Code Capital, invested $120 million in Opera's Opay um, just in Mm -hmm. this last month. Um, and what's happening is, is you're seeing um, this start to expand into other areas. It's creating different dynamics with competition on the continent with existing players, including Opera's going to expand OPE into Kenya, which has been Africa's um, you know, capital for mobile money. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to, I mean, when it comes to what, what's to look at here, um, one, there's more competition. Two, there's more investment for uh, African startups overall. And that all sounds good. That all sounds good, but then it enters this complicated part of Africa's 
involvement in um, or China's involvement in Africa, which right. has been somewhat controversial. To be objective, um, the the conversation around China and Africa runs kind of the the extreme would be that it's neo-colonialism and that China is taking over Africa. Um, on the positive end, Africans will often tell you that China is actually meeting us where we want to be. They're offering us money. We need infrastructure. They're building stuff. They're mm -hmm. helping us with bridges. And a lot of people bring lecture, but they don't bring the funds. But there is concerns about data privacy. We've just got about yes. 25 seconds yes. left, and, right? this, and that's the concern. This pivot to digital creates a whole new uh, topic in China and Africa. When you get to the concerns with Huawei, when you get to Chinese investors having major stakes in big consumer platforms that run a lot of data and, and, and fintech information, um, I think the continent's still getting its hands around that yeah. now after just grasping the, the amount of the investment and who's doing what and where. And that's TechCrunch contributor Jake Bright. You need a hand, I can assure you this, I can help. If you think about those that have been an advocate for better governance and accountability in the private sector and in government, this individual definitely comes to mind. Anat Mahdi is Professor of Finance and Economics at Stanford Graduate School of Business based in Palo Alto, California, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you back with us. Thank you. So I have to ask you, you're, we're looking at, Jason and I reading your latest post, you seem to be calling out your own profession, academia. What's going on? Well, you know, I look around and, you know, there are a lot of problems in this world. And so we have an emphasis like you had just now about the private sector, uh, for-profit private sector being ESG and doing good and doing well and all this stuff. And I'm asking what's the role of, of my tribe, of the academics, in making a system work? Capitalism, democracy, you name it. We we're very privileged in academia, let me tell you. I mean... We don't make the money that some people who come on your show do make, but uh, but we're okay, right. and we have tenure, and so and we have expertise. But so, so the question it, I have: What is it that you want? Your I want peers academics. To do? So, so I I live in that bubble, and I've lived in that bubble for a long time until I came down from that 80th floor of the ivory tower down mm -hmm. to the ground, and. What I've seen, you know, was pretty sobering about the realities of the kinds of assumptions, especially in my tribe of economists, make. And so we, you know, we became the field, economics in particular, of making assumptions that every other academic silo of different departments is kind of leaving big gaps between them. And so you got a bunch of siloed academics, universities basically allow us all, you know, free market of ideas to do what we want. And somehow the assumption is that when all of that, the invisible hand of that happens, the market for ideas, for publications, however it works in academia, that all of that produces kind of the best outcome for the world. We're a nonprofit institution. You don't think it does? Well, I think I think it does, but it, I think it can do better. I think that in the areas that I know about, in particular in business schools and in, in economics and in other areas, including tech, I was recently involved in, mm -hmm. you know, even HBO Silicon Valley series to kind of, as a medium to get through to the public, we can do better both to, uh, to kind of make sure that, you know, powerful people are right. accountable, including in governments, help the government. So in other words, the whole idea of private sector doing good, as I described last time I was here, we discussed my mm -hmm. Harvard Business Review piece on, yeah. on that, was that governments can't do stuff. And I'm saying if government can't do stuff, then why is that? And did you contribute to that? In other words, did you steal their people? Did you, lower, right. did you, are, you are we not paying them enough? In other words, why is it that the governments are failing? I want that problem to be more of our collective problem, including in particular academics. Well, and I do feel like the last time you were here, we were talking about the business roundtable, yep. uh, which came up in our last yep. segment as well. And this notion that companies are having a moment where they're starting to think more holistically about their responsibility to society. And I guess what I would ask you is, is it just a moment or is this a secular change? And and if we don't know yet, when will we know? I think there's plenty to do for everybody. So I think it's all like welcome and fine as far as it can go. But, you know, we have a society in which we don't leave it to people to decide how fast to drive on the road. We have speed limits right. and policemen and all of that. So my question is, what are the rules? And, you know, just last weekend over Thanksgiving weekend, supposed to be a happy weekend, but I happened to go watch Dark Waters, a, wa a yes. movie about DuPont and the lawyers. So, and these are unregulated uh 
chemicals. And so the whole problem, the legal problem of DuPont was that it misled people, sort of tobacco style, about the harm from those chemicals. And people got sick and this one lawyer, you know, ruined his life 20 years and they're still, he and an actor, producer now, uh, Ruffalo, are, are going around, you know, advocating that people should be aware of that. Then, just to read something very comforting, I read a book called Bottle of Lies. And Bottle of Lies is about the generic Manufacturers yeah. that are giving you had us a downer cheap. of a holiday. Weekend. I know. I, I was really like, why so, am I not reading something more so, cheerful? Yeah. So, but it's like, who's going to solve that problem? Who's going to make sure that the drugs we take that come from India are inspected properly? I thought F F, and then I, and then you read about Boeing. Okay, so FAA, FDA, these are the regulations that were supposed to be on well, top of the world. Well, what's interesting is we have an administration. We had a story in the Bloomberg that talked about there's a lot more lobbyists within the administration, right. former yeah, lobbyists. Yeah, exactly. So okay, so what role? Read fifth risk of Mark. Michael yes, Lewis. Michael right. Lewis, yeah. So exactly. what role does academia play in kind of bringing to light some of this? Because what's interesting is, and I've worked at a business school, you know, you often have a lot of professors working with the business community, consulting, and so there's not a very black and white or strong division. Exactly. So I'm here actually very related to this writing, and, and I just, you know, got added in uh, later uh, for this week, is in a conference on academic lobbying at Columbia tomorrow and Friday. That's why what brought me to this uh, city. So, this so time, what needs to be done? What I'll tell you what needs to be done. The incentives of the academics are not right because there are incentives coming from the private sector expert witnesses, uh, consulting. consulting. Fun. Now we have a story about Google funding research in Wall Street Journal recently, et cetera, et cetera. So the private sector, f you know, funds pharmaceutical research. And, you know, you just, uh, you, you, I was promoting Coca-Cola for right. great ESG, but it's it's the sugar, you know, manufacturers that distorted nutrition research w back then. And that was, again, academics uh, for, for sale uh, doing that. But lobbying for the public, which is really where the political problem is, where the thin political markets is, where only conflicted academic, conflicted experts in general, not academic necessarily, are involved in writing accounting rules or whatever, right. you know, is the underbelly of the, of the whole thing. Why don't w we as academics do not have incentive to do that sort of pro bono mm -hmm. work, you know, the kind of thing I've been running around doing, and I'm reflecting and so that why I'm so alone. And schools yes. need to kind of set the Encourage rules. that, right. yeah, encourage so us what to be involved without to? conflict, yes. Right. So, is it up to the universities then to set different rules? Well, we 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 uh, when we evaluate people for tenure, or you know, the, the people who do well in that profession, in the academic profession, they publish papers and they teach, uh, and then what they else they do is usually you know consult if they do that or whatever. They can choose a cause. They can become involved in you know school board or whatever else, like everybody else on the side. But professionally, what I think and what I've seen Just is huge gaps, yeah. huge gaps in the understanding of policymakers of issues that we know about, that we have a lot of knowledge about. And it's our duty, I think, and, and, and responsibility to help them and to hold them accountable. And that's Anat Admati, Professor of Finance and Economics at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, the number one business school, according to Business Week. Let's see action. Let's see people. Yeah, let's see, what's going to happen in 2020 when it comes to venture capital investing? Because I feel like, Jason, WeWork, it's failed IPO and its array of governance issues have really impacted the conversation around startups, private markets, and that includes, of course, venture capital. Let's talk about the VC world. David Spring is with us. He's founder and CEO at Runway Growth, based in San Francisco, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Nice to see you again. You too. Great to be here. So tell us, I do wonder about the lasting impact of WeWork uh, on the VC world. Has it changed things dramatically? Yeah, it has changed things. I'm not sure how long that's going to last, but uh, it has definitely shifted from you know growth at any cost to like path to profitability. Mm -hmm. You know that's a that's a big thing. But I do think that you know VCs really build companies 
so that they can be exited. So they're building a company so that it will please the buyers. And whether the buyers are uh, institutions buying on an IPO, which is very, very rare, by the way. Yeah. That gets all the attention from the media, but right. the, on average, there's only like 80 IPOs a year for the last five years, so it's nothing. Um, but then on the M&A side, they're bought by corporate buyers or more and more PE firms right. are the buyers, and they do not want to pick up a big burn. So, you know, you really, that path to profitability thing, I think is, you know, is, is here to stay, but there will be a growth at a, a measured or intelligent, um, you know, spend, if you will. Yeah. David, one thing that a venture capitalist said to me in the wake of WeWork was this notion that it has changed and made much more sophisticated, maybe much more intense conversations between VCs and entrepreneurs around governance. A, that essentially they're now able to walk in and say, oh, you don't want to do that? You don't want an independent board? You don't want to do this? Do you want to end up being WeWork? You know, that it's become real, almost weaponized to, to some extent in this conversation. Have you seen that? Have you seen more talk about governance at this point? So first of all, the governance extremes that we saw at WeWork, you know, and they are present in a few other really high profile deals that, you know, we all know about. Those are not the norm yeah. in Silicon Valley. So, and it never has been, you know, it's only the, you know, the, the hottest of hot companies with the most aggressive CEO that even ask for those things. So, and, you know, really where I operate is in the, you know, the unsung heroes. Right. You know, and one of the things that I want to talk to you guys about is like this imbalance in the world of venture capital where there's so few exits. We talked about IPOs. There's only 80. There's less than 1,000 M&A exits and 2,500 new companies come into the system every year. So we're building up this giant mass and now it's up to about 25,000 companies that are are, you know, venture backed, they're not exiting. And in a lot of cases, they're outliving the ability of their venture firms to support them. And, you know, dealing with how to fund those companies that for lack of a better word are good, but not great. Uh, that's what we're all about. And to get your point, Jason, those people have never asked for these crazy, Interesting. Uh, crazy governance, uh, you know, uh, abnormal requests. So among those you said, was it about 25,000 companies, did you say? There's 25,000 so venture-backed companies in existence today. How many of them will ultimately exist in five to 10 years from now? Because I do feel like in the VC world, certainly in the early startup world, whether it's angel investing, people throw a lot of money at things that never come to fruition. Correct. So I do wonder of those 25,000 that might be struggling to get capital, that I love capitalism. Maybe some of them shouldn't be able to <laughs> exist going forward. I mean, that's the system working, correct? Definitely. So this, you know, law of nature and survival of the fittest and all of that, it definitely works. I'm more talking about the people that deserve to survive yeah. and are not getting the attention because the venture capital business is so geared towards hitting home runs. Not even home runs, grand slams. Even with all that money that's sloshing around, Jason and I constantly have conversation about whether it's private equity money, whether it's family wealth offices, whether it's you know, institutional money. There's so much money that's looking to go in that area. You're saying it's not, it's not. They all want to get into the unicorns. The, yeah. you know, the people that you guys talk about, that's yeah. where they want to invest. And there is a ton of money trying to fight their way into those deals, but not the guys that are doing our 20 or 30 or 40 million that deserve to survive, but they're never going to be an IPO. How do you solve that imbalance? Well, I think we're going to have a new class called Distressed Venture, mm -hmm. where people will raise venture funds to come in and capitalize on the opportunity to build these companies and take advantage of the weakness of or inability of existing investors to continue to support those companies. And then people like us that do venture debt, where we lend money as an alternative or a supplement to equity, we, we can help those companies. It does seem like we're in for some sort of reckoning is probably too strong of a word, but across the entire private capital spectrum. Totally agree. And that's David Sprang, the CEO of Runway Growth. Don't you want to be evil like me? Don't you want to uh. be so one of our next guests picked this song and we'll get into why about being evil. Um, 
And it speaks to a bigger, broader theme this year, and it's been a theme this year, and it's no doubt going to be a theme in 2020. Big tech, the regulation of it, what big tech stands for, what they're all about, how they're impacting our world. Let's get into it, because Vinny Catalano is back with us. He's Chief Market Strategist at Stuyvesant Capital Management, Global Investment Strategist at Defoe Redmount, uh, and also with us is CNN Global Economic Analyst, Rana Faruhar. She is also author of the book, Don't Be Evil, Hence the Evil, uh, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us. They're both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Um, Nice to have you both with us. Um, Jason and I talk about this all the time. First of all, talk to us a little bit about the premise for your book. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I cover the markets and you just look at the numbers and you see that basically about 80% of corporate value is living in 10% of firms and they're the firms that have the most data, the most intellectual property. So this is part of a massive shift that's really the industrial revolution of our time. So the economic story is there, the political story, I mean, we've been living this now for two years. The fact that the model of a Google or a Facebook in particular is highly targeted advertising. It's about targeting us down to the individual, but that splits society. I mean, it comes with side effects. It comes comes with a lot of great value, but it comes with side effects. Then there's the brain science, the social uh, issues. And, you know, to be honest, I got into this topic in some ways for a personal reason. I came home one day, I was looking at a credit card bill, and there were all these tiny charges, $1.99, $3. I thought, my God, I've been hacked. And then I realized my 10-year-old son has my passwords. Turns out he had racked up $900 in a supposedly free online soccer game that was tracking him and selling him in-app purchases. And I thought, you know, as a mother, I was horrified. But as a a business journalist, I thought, I want to know everything about this. Yeah. 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 So, Vinny, come on in here because as Rana so wisely noted at the top, I mean, this is a business story front and center. And for investors... Uh, what's not to love about tech? I mean, Carol mm-hmm. just went through the numbers at the close of how well these big tech stocks have done. Investors have made a ton of money here. FOMO, absolutely. fear of missing out too if you don't jump on the uh, on, on the investment train <laughs> yeah, here. Sure, absolutely. I think I think the listeners, investors should know that there is an investment paradigm here uh, that they need to dig a little bit deeper into and understand. Rana talks about it with the... Uh, the targeted ads and the revenue streams that are coming from it, from this surveillance capitalism system uh, that is going on. Uh, and it's interesting when Rana mentions about uh, that she was hacked, that uh, she thought she might have been hacked. And as I begin to explore this area, thanks to Rana, that uh, I realized that, yeah, we're being hacked. Yeah. But we're not being hacked in the manner of, you know, you would ordinarily think about it, the, the drill down into our behavior. Yeah. Well, so you really need to understand the, it on, on a whole range of levels. Well, we talk about the business we cover this week about Google and the generals at Google, right? You know, for a long time, Silicon Valley wore as a badge of honor, mm-hmm. uh, kind of Washington hating them. And now all of a sudden that they're middle aged, a lot of these big tech companies, especially something like a Google, you know, they want to be involved in those big government contracts. Yeah, sure. And uh, and they're doing so, but they've got a lot of their employees not happy about it. This whole idea of, you know, not doing evil, yeah. right? This was something that they held as part of their corporate culture, and now things are changing. Yeah, and it was always baked into the business model, frankly. I mean, evil was part, was part of the business model if you think that targeted... From day that, one. From day one. I mean, you go back to the 1998, the very first paper that Larry uh, Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, wrote. Um, it had a section at the bottom that said, if you monetize a big search engine with targeted advertising, the interests of the users and those of the advertisers are going to come into conflict at some point. And so they actually advocated for an open search engine, maybe something in the academic sphere. But, um, Mm. you know, it's interesting. Vinny's making a a fascinating point because this disruption is not just about the four or five Silicon Valley giants. It's coming to every business model. So one of the things that I find so fascinating, if you just look at the insurance industry, for example, Mm -hmm. you can now have sensors in your house, in your car that will give you a discount if you know if you're taking care of your plumbing um, or you're stopping quickly but you might get a black mark if your kid is smoking weed in the bedroom what does that do that disrupts the entire insurance business model of pooled risk think about that that's coming to every industry the the implications are really profound and so we've only got about a minute left in this first segment we're going to keep you around for another what's the biggest surprise to you writing this book what jumped out 
you know, in some ways, the fact that it was always there, it was hiding in plain sight. You know, that that paper, and frankly, this goes to my point. I mean, one of the side, one of the social side effects of of this high speed media landscape that we're in is that people don't read as much. And right. I got to think that nobody read the initial paper because yeah. we kind of would have known where we were going to be. And we want to continue our conversation. Uh, still with us is Vinny Catalano, Chief Market Strategist over at Stuyvesant Capital Management, Global Investment Strategist at Defoe Red Mount, and also still with us is Rana Faruhar. Her- book is Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us. This is great for your stocking stuffers uh, this holiday season <laughs> because... <plug>. Big stocking. <laughs> yeah, big stocking. That's okay. Stocking. There's like, this is like a must read because it does um, It's really the story impact. of our time. It is. It's the story of our time. And it impacts no matter what industry. You said before the break, you know, one of the things we need to get into is China's role in all of this. Tell us a little bit about that and where you see how that plays in. Right. Well, th- this is the story. The the economic story right now, tech, trade wars, this is really about China and the U.S. going different ways in terms of how the internet is going to be governed, in terms of strategic technologies. I keep hearing from a lot of Chinese investors that they they believe they're going to have their own ecosystem. They've already got their own big tech players, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, all those, but that they are going to actually have their their own uh, supply chains, their own consumer brands. I mean, a company like Xiaomi is already doing better Mm -hmm. in some in some areas than Apple in China. So this is a big split coming. And it's really interesting. It's provoking some fascinating, um, uh, strange bedfellows in the U.S. You know, you see a company like Google saying, well, you know, maybe we should be a national champion here, um, you know, teaming up with the Defense Department, uh, thinking mm-hmm. about how to kind of ring fence the, the ecosystem in the U.S. Same again with Amazon. They've tried to ring fence government purchasing. My worry is the overall ecosystem, though. I worry that you're, you're going to end up with a scenario where four or five big players have the entire pie, and that doesn't work. We've got to make room for other other companies, really. So four or five players sort of connotes that there would be a monopoly. Yeah. And yet we seem to need a new definition for monopoly. Right. Because monopoly pertains to price increases generally as a rule in an industrial economy, but in this kind of surveillance, capitalistic information economy. That's really not the case. Yeah, and you know, the, the point about price is so profound because you're absolutely right that the whole Chicago school, you know, as long as mm-hmm. prices are going down, everything's fine, doesn't fit when you're, you're not doing a transaction in dollars, you're doing it in data, it's a barter transaction. Right. So mm-hmm. that's not a, that, that's a very opaque market and that's why you have this asymmetry and this kind of superstar effect with an Amazon or a Google. They've got all the information. You don't have any information. Right. So. I think we are going to need some regulatory shifts to deal with that. So as you sort of finish reporting and writing this, and as you go out and talk to people, I mean, as we've been saying, we're not just saying it because you're, I mean, it is the story of our time. It's incredibly timely. Are you more optimistic, less optimistic? Have you changed your own sort of behavior or your thoughts about this through the process? Well, I, I absolutely have. I mean, I've done a digital detox. It was kind of actually by force that I, um, uh, last Christmas I dropped my cell phone on Christmas Eve. It was a company issued phone and I couldn't get a replacement. And it was like, you know, going off cigarettes or something yeah. for 48 hours. I was twitchy, I kept reaching in my pocket. So um, I do that regularly now. And I've actually cut down the amount of times that I check email, which by the way, it takes you five minutes to reset every time you interrupt. So your productivity, I mean, t- that's a whole nother topic. Lost product, the productivity conundrum probably has something to do with technology and, and the effects of these firms. No, I think that's a really good point. And, and you see more and more advice saying, you know, check your email certain, you know, a certain amount of time, you know, times yeah. a day, not constantly letting it kind of interrupt your workflow. I do wonder though, in terms of regulatory oversight, where it's all heading. Yeah. Well, there's there's two big schools of thought. I mean, one is that, look, we can work within the existing system and just make some small tweaks. The other thought, and this is more how the Europeans are going, is we're going to need a really profound reshaping. I mean, the Europeans are talking about public uh, data banks, you know, where mm-hmm. you would the public sector would own this this data. But on the other hand, you've got California coming in saying, hey, maybe we need a digital sovereign wealth fund. Because at the end of the day, if data is the new oil, you have to make sure that that value can be shared. Well... Can I just add something Please. here? Rana said earlier uh, in regards to um, the 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 capture of information and the and the anticipation of what is about to occur and you know dropping the phone things of that sort. One of the concerns that's been expressed has been whether or not the machine learning will have accomplished so much 
that it knows what you're going to do in anticipation of, mm. and therefore it isn't. Do you, know, you have free will? You don't. Yeah, it really does come down to that. Yeah, it really has. A, it has a it's definitely a ma- Yeah, <laughs> that's correct. It has a matrix feel to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a whole other level. And that's Vinny Catalano, Chief Market Strategist at Stuyvesant Capital Management and CNN Global Economic Analyst, Rana Faruhar. So I'm thinking building on perhaps some conversations we've had as of late around this table in our Bloomberg and Director Broker Studio. Um, I want to get to our next guest because he has noted how dangerously disconnected the public is from our financial system. It is the subject of his new book. Joining us on the phone is Chris Varelas. He's co-founder of Riverwood Capital. His book, How Money Became Dangerous, The Inside Story of Our Turbulent Relationship with Modern Finance. He joins us on the phone from Menlo Park, California. Hey, Chris, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, tell us a little bit about, I mean, you have an interesting background. You understand the financial world. Yeah, hi, Carol. Thanks Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I spent 35 years in the industry and have traversed many of the sectors within the finance world, commercial banking, sales and trading, investment banking, M&A, private equity. And uh, yeah, I've had a long, long career and been fortunate to work on some of the more interesting transactions in Wall Street history. What's changed about maybe when you started on Wall Street and kind of where the financial community, financial system is today? Well, so much has changed, you know, in just one generation. I I like to say my parents only cared about two numbers, right? They cared, and they were both years. They cared about the year they paid off their mortgage and the year they qualified for their pension. Hmm. And since then, you know, so much has happened. The complexity of the of the financial system has grown dramatically in so many different ways as we pushed for scale, scope, and efficiency at the expense of the, you know, the personal, of the interaction, of the of the knowing the person, of of knowing who we're interacting with, even having a person on the other side of that. And the complexity of this of the system has grown so much, while our understanding of it really has gone in many cases down. I think a lot of people have said, you know, I can't possibly understand this, so I'm just going to step back and sort of, you know, disengage completely. Well, and I do wonder what the financial crisis did to either reinforce that or to maybe change the direction. What, What impact ultimately did the, the crisis have on consumers and on behavior? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. Um, and I and we think about this a lot. So it initially inspired this sort of rage, right? right. About the Occupy Wall Street movement, which people are like, this is not acceptable. We can't have this. We need to do something. But because people couldn't articulate the challenge and the problem, and therefore, if you can't articulate the challenge, you're not going to come up with solutions. And then it sort of faded as most you know, typically financial crises do. And then you sort of said, okay, I'm just going to walk away. And in a sense, it almost turned people more off and more distant from it because they said, oh, this is just one of those scary things I just don't want to like tangle with. And now we see it, we see that in all kinds of behaviors. You know, we see, you know, we see millennials wanting to trade off an algorithm when you know, not even deal with people because the trust level is so low. They'd rather trust an algorithm than than a person. And, you know, it manifests itself in so many ways. I have to say, I think about the market all the time, that how much of it is now, you know, driven by computers and what that means for the retail investor. Um, You know, sometimes good when everything's going up, but, you know, I do wonder when we get to a downturn, which ultimately we will at some point, but I do wonder about the impact on it. What, What are your biggest concerns here? Well, my biggest concerns are we have a we have a sort of antiquated system, you know, at, at all levels. We're talking about how money is managed, um, and then we have um, you know people and complexity that that aren't keeping you know, the systems can't manage, and we mostly that I think in the in the pension system, for example. So we have this, you know, we have debt being raised to fund you know to fund pension deficits or any actions that are taken. And the system is focused on this, okay, this annual budget challenge of how do I pay employees and, you know, look, let's see, like, I can't meet my cash shortfall, I can't give them a raise, so, you know, let's, let's sort of promise more, more benefits in the future that I won't have to worry about because it's beyond my term of office. And so as a result, we have 
you know, people disconnected where they're like, who's holding that system accountable for a mismatch incentive system where I can sort of make promises that I'm not going to have to be responsible for being, you know, being there when it happens. I think that's one. You know, another example is, you know, we, I think we have the 25th anniversary of the ETF, which yeah. is a wonderful mechanism to democratize access to market returns on a very efficient cost-based system. And, you know, that's been a wonderful development and a positive. But when you have 50 plus percent of the market who's completely, you know, passively involved and doesn't, doesn't actually engage or care really, you know, what's going on in that system, you know, that does create the potential for, you know, what happens when liquidity dries up and, you know, no one's really that invested in any particular ownership space. Right. You know, that there's there's it's pervasive throughout the system this challenge. And that that's the direction we're going. We're going toward this efficiency scale, passive, disconnected combination that you know, that, that just creates challenges, systemic challenges that we haven't seen. And that's Chris Varellis. He is the co founder of Riverwood Capital. So, Carol Nasser, a couple stats for you that really surprised me. The worldwide market size for type 2 diabetes, $827 billion, one in eight healthcare dollars. This blew me away. Yeah. Are spent on diabetes. That's unbelievable. It's such a huge problem, right? It's a huge problem. And a lot of people, smart people, trying to attack it in terms of treatments and mm-hmm. medicines and whatnot. Nadav Kudron is here with us. He is one of those people. He's the CEO of Ormed Pharmaceuticals based here in New York City. Great to see you. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. This feels like a big deal. This feels like a big breakthrough. We're talking about a new treatment for type 2 diabetes. Tell us about it. Absolutely. From 2005 till today, there was no major breakthrough in the way we treat diabetes. Now, what we do in Ormed is we take the insulin which currently can only be administered as an injection, and we have a technology to deliver it orally. So imagine that the diabetics population can take insulin orally, which is better from compliance and just physiologically a much better way to do it. So is it as effective? Where are you in that process? In terms so of we just finished a phase to B. Right. So basically it was successful, safe, and efficacy was great. And we're now moving into phase three and then register it as a drug under the FDA. So what have you seen though so far? Is it apples to apples in terms of injections? So it's a little bit of a different way of looking at it. The idea is that with oral insulin, the patients are going to start the administration of the oral insulin much earlier on. And by doing so, you'll have a much better control of the diabetes. So if you what th- do you mean much earlier? You mean in terms of having the disease that they'll st- they'll start on insulin earlier? So they'll start with oral insulin. How, let, let, let's look how it works today. Right. Okay. So today you go to your doctor and tells you, listen, I'm sorry to tell you, your sugar level is too high. You start with diet and exercise. I'm talking about type two. Right. Diet and exercise. Then you move into different oral agents that are not insulin, and eventually the last resort is that you need to inject ah. insulin. We're going to change the whole thing. We're going to come and say, okay, forget it. Start with the diet and exercise for sure. Best drug ever. But then take Ormond's oral insulin, okay? And then you're going to be in a much better control for so many more years and you will benefit and the entire society will that? benefit. How do we know that? Because you know, I've known a fair amount of people have had diabetes. And I mean, yeah, the insulin is not, nobody looks forward to that. That's kind of considered the last step of having to do that. So if you can manage it up to that point. So my concern is if you start with insulin early, how is that a good thing? So even today would be a good thing, but many people are afraid of the needle. Mm-hmm. The reason that it's a good thing is because if you think about it, how our body works, let's go back to our biology class from third grade. We have the pancreas making the insulin into the liver. The liver takes it into the the bloodstream. When we give it orally, it goes into the liver. So we mimic the physiological way that the body works, unlike the injection that goes directly into the bloodstream. That's why it's much more advantageous for us to use the oral insulin versus the injection in most cases. So you mentioned that there's been no big breakthrough in almost 15 years. Why did this take so long? Well, welcome to the world of the FDA. So even us at Oramed that we're making, we're taking the same insulin that was discovered almost 100 years ago, and we just have a safe technology to deliver it orally. We still have to go through phase one, phase two, phase three, almost as long as developing a new drug. 
And so why, I, I guess I'll ask the, the same question in a slightly different way. Why didn't someone come up with this sooner? Because, I mean, like Carol, right. I've known a lot of people. I had good friends in college, you know, who as teenagers, you know, had to inject themselves uh, with, with insulin. It's really a, a very difficult thing to do. Uh, why didn't this breakthrough happen decades ago? So you should ask yourself, there's so many injections currently that we take as an injection. Wouldn't you rather take them as a pill? A hundred percent. So the answer is that many times when you take a small peptide, which is a protein, if you're going to swallow it, if I will take the insulin now without Oramets technology and I will try to swallow it, it will just break down. Uh. So we have a technology that knows how to protect it and how to come with the issue of the size of, 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 of the gut wall in order to deliver it into the, into the liver. So this is a delivery. You're essentially solving the delivery problem. Exactly. Here. And I can use it for many other things. I can use it for insulin, for flu vaccine, for many other things. But insulin is the holy grail. Do you need the same dosage? Because I know some of the concerns have been that if it's going to some extent through your digestive system, that you kind of pull out some of the insulin so that you're going to ultimately need to in, to take more for it to be effective. So where are we on that? So we absolutely need to take more than an injection. But the most fascinating thing that we see over this, the recent trial that we did, less is more. Meaning when we gave less insulin, it was even more effective than when we gave more insulin. How is that? So How do you explain that science? We believe that? that what happens is the liver does an amazing job. It regulates the secretion of the insulin and regulates the secretion of the glucose. By getting insulin directly into the liver, we signal to the liver, hey, here is insulin, so it stops the excessive production of glucose by the liver, hence the magic that with a small amount of insulin, orally, you can reduce the glucose level drastically. So we talk a lot about sort of the health and well-being, especially here in the yeah. United States and, you know, obesity rates going up and, and diabetes obviously is always tied into the sort of broader health. And you alluded to this earlier. What else is being done, do you feel like, sort of more, more holistically, literally and figuratively, to combat diabetes at this point? So let me start with the negative. I think we're just not doing enough to have an holistic picture and to see how as a society, we're spending almost a trillion dollars a year on diabetes, okay? But it's easier for the payers to get their money, it's easier for, for, for the doctors to subscribe straight drugs. What do we do as a society to look at the holistic picture and to make sure that we can have more healthier and a little bit less cost for us to keep ourselves as a healthy society. So let me follow up on that because it's, it's a really important point. I feel like we talk about it mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, is this just that the economics are, for lack of a better term, sort of perverted across the healthcare spectrum, that it's easier to essentially get everything paid for when it's a treatment rather than if it's preventative? So I think it's a few things. I think number one, it's, it's each one looks at its own perspective. So if you were the insurance company, you want to make your money the way you make it, and that's it. If you were the doctor and you were the patient, and each one looks at his own way. The government doesn't come. Nobody comes and say, wait, wait, wait a second. The whole thing doesn't make sense. I'll give you one quick example from South Africa. A few years ago, and I think it's coming to America as well, a guy who started an insurance company in South Africa, and he basically said, if you're going to exercise, which is the best drug ever invented in the world, you know, your insurance costs are going to cost less. Right. So simple things like that will encourage people to keep themselves in a much healthier position. So realistically, when do you anticipate that this would actually be approved and on the market? Next year, early next year, we're going to meet with the FDA, start the phase three. Phase three should take two years or so, another year of registration, and then we should have it in the market here. I should say that we already have a partner in China, and it's probably going to get registered in China before the United States. The oral insulin wow. will reach China first. And that's Nadav Kidron. He is the CEO of Oramed Pharmaceuticals. I say that the women of today smarter than the I told you a little, talk a little startups, that's little VC, right. and interestingly, sort of uh, keying off something we talked about earlier, healthcare uh, yep. and what uh, may be underneath some of the startups that we're seeing on the scene. Uh, Vanessa Liu is here with us. She's vice president at SAP and the head of SAP's startup accelerator. You may know it as SAP.io. She's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, a native New Yorker, native New York City, uh, I believe, as well. So tell us what is going on out there. You guys hosted... Uh, 
an event with some startups that are uh, in the healthcare space. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, that's right. So we just had a demo day where we profiled seven companies we've been working with. These are healthcare startups that are late seed to Series C that we chose out of a field of over 150 companies. And they're all in the space of healthcare, being able to work with healthcare providers to change the innovation that they're doing and also working with corporates on employee health and wellness. Why healthcare? And I'm curious, is this an acknowledgement that this is one of the industries that has yet to really be disrupted if you look at everything else that's going on. And this is an opportunity essentially for SAP to maybe have some significant say in that disruption. That's exactly right. That's exactly why we did this. This is an industry that is ripe for disruption. There are so many, unfortunately, inefficiencies right now, especially in the U.S. market. So that means that- Why do you say especially U.S. versus other developed markets or what? Other markets that have single payer structures, for instance, where then that becomes much more of a government um, control type of industry. And so over here, because there's a lot of fragmentation, that means that there are many different pockets where analytics are being done. If you think about how electronic medical records really first started, it was because there had to be systems in place to track what people were doing. Mm -hmm. But because there are so many disparate players in it, it's now so all over the place. And that's why this whole entire idea of trying to create some type of centralized repository for data is really interesting. So half of the startups that we were working with over the last 12 weeks have been focused on that using AI, machine learning, thinking about ways where you can really just identify the unstructured text and finding the insights from that. So. We've been talking a lot lately when we've been talking to folks in the entrepreneurial and the venture communities specifically about diversity or lack thereof in the founder class, Mm -hmm. in the investor class as well. You have a lot of power in that world in your selections and essentially you're championing there. What do you feel like you guys are doing and, and how do you make a meaningful difference in that part of the equation and having candidly a much more sort of diverse set of founders? Yeah, we have an, a commitment where 40% of the founders we either fund or we accelerate through our accelerators have to be founders that are underrepresented. Here in New York, our programs are 100% focused on that. Hmm. The reason why we're doing this is because when you're saying we're going to make technology better, technology for whom? How are you going to be making that technology better exactly? And being stewards of technology, we think that we have a critical role to play to say, these are the types of companies we're going to work with. Startups come in so many different forms, so many different types of innovations that are happening. A lot of the times what we're finding is that underrepresented founders just haven't been provided the access to the right networks to surface what they're doing. It's not because they don't have the great idea, because they do. So you said 40%? 40% globally. Why not 50%? Why not just been, go in? I want to make it 50%. No, I think it's just kind of interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, the research that's been out there, you know, the more diverse, and I'm not just talking men and women, but the more diverse you have a group of people, whether it's creating companies or discussing certain problems that are out there, that you're more likely to have a smarter solution. That's right. Smarter solution is going to also grow and more viable. It'll just grow that much faster, better cultures. What is it in the healthcare that you think is very interesting and innovative that's happening right now? Is it just about kind of getting the data to make sense and and organize it? Or is there something else that's happening that, that would that would be like, wow, I didn't know that was going on. So one of the things that we focus on the other half of the cohort were actually corporates that are not going to be every day linked to healthcare, but they have an important role to play. If you think about the Fortune 500 companies out there, the number of employees that they employ, what can you do if you can tap into what they do with employees? Hmm. So if you think about mental health and wellness, you think about how one in four people nowadays are battling some type of mental health condition. But yet, if you look in the workplace, about 60% of people don't talk about it. They don't even talk about the fact that they are struggling with something. Employers can have a very critical role to play because they are there with them. And so that is a shift that we see. It's not just about providers, it's not just about payers, but it's also the role that companies can play. We think that that's a really, really big innovation, really big area that is 
what we're going to see a lot happening there in the next few years. And that's Vanessa Liu, vice president of SAP.io. All right. So, Jason, we had a pretty cool conversation with uh, the folks over at Zenith Watches. The company is 150 years old. It continues to innovate and think about how to attract customers, especially younger customers who increasingly have more and more choices. So we caught up with the CEO of Zenith, Julian Tornare, and uh, check out what he had to say. Watches are, pardon the pun, sort of having a moment in a way. People are rediscovering the sort of artisan nature in many ways, the craftsmanship that Carol was alluding to. Why do you think that is? Why are people sort of pivoting back Mm -hmm. and maybe away from the smartwatch? Well, you know, first of all, you don't have so many objects like a watch. And I think today we we live in such a fast world. I mean, between the internet, between social media. uh, And don't forget that a watch, a mechanical watch, is one of the few objects that will last forever. Right. If in 1,000 years you have a watch and you have a watchmaker able to put some oil, it's still going to work. How many objects in this room will still work in 1,000 years? So when you buy a cell phone, when you buy a smartwatch, you know the minute you buy it, it's already obsolete. So I think sometimes people need to attach themselves to something that will, that will last forever. I do wonder about, and I think about the conversations we keep having about fast fashion and the pushback, yeah. this kind of disposable society that right. we've become, where we used to hold something or our dads would fix something that got broken. And I do wonder if we're kind of channeling back to that. And what are you seeing in terms of your consumer, especially the younger consumer? Because you talk about you've got to invent to bring in a younger generation. Mm-hmm. What do they want in a watch? I think they want, uh, they buy history, they buy authenticity. That's what they want also. Because mm-hmm. today also, we are bombarded by uh, marketing, com- communication, publicity everywhere, and they want to buy something with substance, with content. So they often ask us questions about how it's made, how long does it take, basically what's behind the brand and what's behind the price. What do I pay when I get a watch? So we have to, to show them the savoir-faire and how many hours a watchmaker uh, is working on a watch. So that's super important. But also, we need to show them creativity and innovation. Let's not forget that when that watch was made in the 60s, these gentlemen that I met, actually, they're all in the their mid-80s, they were so innovative, passionate, creative, already having a startup spirit. Mm. So that's what we need to continue to do to build the legendary watches of tomorrow. So that it's really connecting tradition to the future. Right. Well, and you're not alone in identifying this mm-hmm. opportunity in many ways. It's a very competitive space. There's even some acquisitions, obviously, right. uh, going on. You're very familiar with that. How does that change the landscape from a business perspective, from a competitive perspective? I think it's a uh, competition is pretty healthy, and I think we are pushing each other. You know, whether it's inside our group, inside LVMH, or outside the group, the more we create, the more we push the limits, the more we will go further. And I think it's very healthy. You know, we, it's very competitive, but in the watch industry, it's a, it's quite friendly uh, mm. competition. You know, we do trade shows together, we share things, we discuss a lot. It's a pretty friendly one. You know, it's a bit the, the Swiss way. You know, compromise way. I do wonder about the benefits of being part of a conglomerate where there's a bunch of brands versus being on your own. And when you're in a conglomerate, um, you know, how do you keep and maintain your identity? I mean, yeah. talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, of course. That's that's a very uh, important point. And I would say I'm lucky to, to run a brand that's part of LVMH because LVMH yeah. culture is to leave independence to each brand, very vertical. So we share things, we work together on some project, but each brand is very independent in its own development. And I think that's very healthy because, you know, clients are not buying the conglomerate, the group, product they are buying brand by brand so if we want the client to remain loyal to a, to a brand you need to uh, keep its identity and that's super important let's talk markets in terms of sure. we know emerging markets we know asia yeah. hong kong these are important markets what have you seen specifically in hong kong because we've talked a lot about the high-end luxury market certainly impacted by the protests there i moved back uh, to europe two years ago after seven years in hong kong so I, I know hong kong quite well and of course it had been such a hub for asia and mostly mm-hmm. for chinese clients it became to a certain extent that was uh, quite quite unbelievable. I would say now with the recent events, of course, the whole uh, industry is suffering. But I think it's also rebalancing because Hong Kong now is not alone anymore. You know, there is a tough competition, plenty of cities, whether in China or in the rest of Asia Pacific, that are basically as a shopping destination as Hong Kong. And Hong Kong used to be a hub. Now it's just another destination among others. So I think it will rebalance and hopefully these events will... uh, will go away and we can resume normal business. But well, to that exact point, just to push you a little bit, we've heard a lot sure. about the rise of Singapore yeah. uh, mm-hmm. as, as, mm-hmm. an alter- as an alternative, I should say. Uh, what do you make of that? 
Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. Singapore is for me the Hong Kong of Southeast Asia, but you have also Seoul uh, in South Korea. You have uh, Japan that's really developing very fast for us. And then inside China also, we, people talk often about Shanghai and Beijing, but if you go to Hangzhou, if you go to Shenzhen, if you go to Guangzhou, these are cities that are developing in, in such a fast way. And when I was there in 2011, you didn't feel like uh, doing shopping there. You go now, it's the best shopping mall in the world. So it's, it's, it's really catching up on Hong Kong. Well, and I do wonder about, because I think everybody has been coveting mainland China as well. I mean, what are the big growth markets for you or the big growth cities right now? Hello, definitely greater China will remain. And when I say greater, I include Hong Kong and, and, and Taiwan to a certain extent. We remain the, the growth engine because of its population. Right. You know, still today, only 4% of the people, they have a passport, they travel, and definitely... I believe for social, um, for social peace, social developments, there will be a development of the, of the middle class in China. So we have, we have a huge growth engine upcoming. But I mean, countries like Indonesia are developing very fast for in luxury. Vietnam also, we have more and more clients coming from Vietnam, buying in Singapore. So I would say this region will remain the, the growth engine for sure and, and, and America as well. So 155 years yeah. in this brand <laughs> is what happens over the next, say, 10 that's difficult to say, but I think, again, we will remain uh, a Swiss watch brand in a very small uh, city in Switzerland, uh, which gives us the authenticity I referred to before, mm -hmm. the long history, but we should not sleep in the past. And that had been a bit the tend tendency of uh, Swiss watchmaking brand, you know, to repeat the past. We want to build the future. That's super important. If we want to keep, again, young generation mm -hmm. interested into mechanical uh, watchmaking, we need to be very dynamic. And the, that's the mission of the brand. Yeah. Julian, does that yeah. include more watches for Zenith breaking auction records? Because you just did, right? Yes, we just did. Uh, it was it was a great thing. And we, we had a, with Philips, uh, Philips Auction House, we did right. that uh, Last a few month weeks it was ago. Sold, right? Correct, in Geneva. And uh, it's fantastic. I mean, we'll continue to do that. How but, much did it go for? Uh, $250,000. Wow. <laughs> All right. That was just Julian Turnari. Just, just slightly above what I'm looking for when I'm shopping <laughs> for a watch. But beautiful watches, I have to say. Check I out uh, the video of that once it's posted. We'll tweet it out because he does a nice job showing off the watches. He Two came, very different watches. I love that he came in with a watch on each hand. But he did say he normally does not wear two watches. <laughs> no. No, he doesn't. Um, but it was really fascinating. And I think the insight that he had, here, here was somebody who lived in Hong Kong, is yeah. watching what's going on, and really has a global perspective in terms of certainly the luxury consumer, uh, what's going on. All right, so let's talk a little motorcycles. We have got just the man to do it. Jason Chinook is here. He is CEO of Ducati North America. And can I just start by saying, we're going to talk about new bikes and stuff like that, but can I just say, this must be like the coolest job in the world. Unquestionably, it's definitely one of the coolest. Because you're a motorcycle <laughs> guy. I mean, you actually started like working behind the counter at a like doing motorcycle parts, right? Yes, I did. In fact, it was something that years ago I was following a different career path, and I made the decision. I said, "Okay, this is clearly not working out for me. This other way I was going." And so I decided I'm going to follow another passion in life, and I started doing my homework, research, informational interviews with executives in the motorcycling industry, and then I realized I said the way for me to really learn this is just to cut my teeth at the at the beginning, at the very bottom. And so I started off as a parts guy at a motorcycle dealership. I mean, I had an education, and I was sure. way overqualified for like what I was doing. Right. But I said, this is where I got to learn. And I learned customers. I learned the product. I learned how to work with manufacturers. I mean, like that was those, those four years were probably the most formative years of my career uh, in terms of setting me for my future. What's changed about the industry since you've started? Uh, the industry is actually, it's become a little bit smaller than yeah. back then. I mean, back then, obviously back in the early nineties or late nineties, credit was a little looser. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of people were getting finance for motorcycles that maybe weren't really in the position where they should be financing motorcycles. Right. And so as a result, what we saw is we saw a bit of a shrinking in the industry, uh, at, when the recession hit and credit dried up. Uh, but the good thing is, is for brands like Ducati and wh wh where we're at, we really weren't affected by that because we always sold in the premium and we never had predatory lending or questionable credit practices. And so as a result, we gained a tremendous amount of market share when the recession hit. Now, volumes did affect, were affected a little bit as well. Right. But, and then as the market came back, not to the same degree as it was before, as it came back, we retained our share, increased our volumes. And so it's been quite positive for us in that regard. All right, so let's talk about this new lineup 2020. What's different? Uh, what can people be looking for? 
Well, one, one of the, the flagship motorcycles that a lot of people are getting really excited about is a new motorcycle that we have called the Street Fighter. And it's this, got a great name. It is, yeah, that it is. And, and it comes from the idea of somebody taking a sport motorcycle like what you would see out on the racetrack, removing the fairings off of it, the, the bodywork, and putting on a really cool headlight and a handlebar. And that basically takes a very aggressive sport bike and makes it accessible for the mm. street. Except for we've taken it and redone a completely beautiful redesign, and it's built off of the V4 platform and chassis, which is uh, which, which is a number one seller last year for us. So there's that product, and that, that's on one end. And on the other end, we find ourselves into the e-bike world as well. Well, that's what I'm curious about. Tell us how aggressively you guys are pursuing, I mean, and how much your customer wants this. Well, this is something they launched in Europe last year as a pilot project. And then when I saw it come out, I myself being a mountain biker was like, I want that product, even if it's just to have one for myself. Uh, and then we took the last year in taking feedback from our customer base, from our dealer network, and just really to understand and research what that market's like. And it's incredible. It's a very fast growing segment in North America. In Europe, it had actually been going for quite sure. some years. Uh, but our customer base is our first audience for this product because it's branded Ducati, but there's also some, re some really unique technologies in the partnership that we have with the company that's making the bikes with us. And that's Jason Chinook, the CEO of Ducati North America. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home wherever you download your podcast. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.